Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The announcement came down last week. The discovery of gravitational waves. Predicted by Albert Einstein nearly 100 years ago, scientists heard the merger of two black holes in deep space for the first time. Now, the key word there is heard to the merger of two black holes in deep space for the first time. To put the discovery in perspective, everything that we know about the universe up until now was what we could see. This is sound from an event that occurred a billion years ago. It is not really understood by a lot of people, or I should say it's not easily understood by a lot of people, but it is historic. To explain is our guest today, Dr. Andrea Lohman, Associate Professor of Astronomy and Director of the Grundy Observatory at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster. Dr. Lohman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, why is this discovery so significant? significant? Well, from a historical perspective, as you said, Einstein predicted these waves 100 years ago. He also said, don't ever bother looking for them. They're too small. You'll never do it. So in some ways, last Thursday's announcement proved Einstein both right and wrong at the same time. Um, In some ways, it's 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 an amazing feat of human technology invention that we figured out how to detect something so small that we could actually detect these things and Einstein in his day could never even conceive that we could detect. Now when you say so small what we heard here not we I mean the the, the researchers uh, heard in two places last September in the United States what they heard was small but that was a sound that occurred a billion years ago and it wasn't small then. It wasn't small if you were close to the two black holes. That's right. It was enormous if you were close to those two black holes. But yeah, then 1.3 billion years ago, these things merge, and 1.3 billion years later, we detect them. That's a signal so small that at the press conference, they described it this way. They said, we um, we detected if if we were to measure the distance between here and the nearest star, which is about four and a quarter light years away, if we measured that distance to a, to a measurement that's smaller than the width of a human hair, that's the kind of measurement we made over those four and a quarter light years. So just so I understand it and that uh, you, the listener out there, understands as well, the reason that it was so small is because over that passage of time and distance, it it gets muffled or somehow that you lose some of the sound, right? Gravitational waves actually don't get muffled. That's one of the stunning things about them. You know, one of the things astronomers, traditional astronomers who detect light, as you said, have to deal with is the absorption of light in between us and where the signal was emitted. All kinds of things absorb light, as you know, dust and gas in the universe. But gravitational waves are almost absorbed Mm -hmm. by nothing, which also makes them very hard to detect, which is why it took us 100 years to and to detect them. Actually, what occurred last September when these were detected, something that lasted a half second right. or uh, a portion of a second? Correct. Correct. Yeah, less than a second. And it was 230, so, so two black holes, each about 30 times the mass of the sun um, in a space that's about the size of Harrisburg, really. So two of those slamming into each other at about half the speed of light. The whole event took less than a second, as you say, and it's all over now. There are no more two black holes. There's a single black hole that's about 60 solar masses. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in and while they collapsed, as we say, while they collapsed, thirty solar ma- uh, three excuse me three solar masses of energy just disappeared into gravitational waves, mm-hmm. and that's the energy that has been coming towards Earth. Now I'm going to ask some basic questions because uh, many people have heard these terms but may not uh, remember their days from high school or or even college if they had uh, physics classes. Uh, black holes. What is a black hole? A black hole is a um, a collapsed star. They're, they come from stars that collapsed and died, and the mass in a black hole is so dense that not even light can escape from it. So you'll notice that you haven't, you can't jump fast enough to jump off the Earth. Um, you have to create quite a quite a rocket to get yourself off of Earth's gravity. But there is a speed at which you can escape Earth's gravity. If you go fast enough, you will escape Earth's gravity. The speed that you need to escape from a black hole is so large that even light doesn't go fast enough to escape from it. So that's why they're called black, because they're dark. There is no light emitted from them, which is which is part of what this make, makes this result so significant, because you you can't get light from a black hole and that's the only tool we've had so far to 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 detect anything in the universe to understand anything in the universe we have light and so we haven't been able to detect black holes but now this tool we have this new tool as of thursday last thursday we have a new tool for studying the universe which is actually a signature of gravity the signature of gravity itself is now what we're detecting. All right, again, I'm going to ask a lot of broad questions and some basic questions as well. But what questions did this discovery answer? It confirmed a lot. In some ways, I would say it, it answered um, it answered that we were right about a lot of things that had been predicted for for 30 years. You know. They have been numerical relativists, is the name of this brand of astronomer, have predi- have been predicting the shape of the waveform that we would detect that they announced last Thursday. And when I say the shape of a waveform, I mean the the way in which space was distorted when this event was detected, because that's what they're measuring is this is this rippling of space time. Yeah, explain that if you will. Yeah. So so what. Einstein Einstein taught us to think about gravity a little bit differently. Up until then, it was all Newton saying there's a force between the Earth and the sun, and that's why the Earth goes around the sun. And Einstein said, well, that will get you only so far. And really how I want you to think about gravity is that gravity causes major um, curvature of space around massive objects. So if you've ever been to a science museum where they have that well... Um, that you put you put your quarter in the yes. top and you watch your quarter slowly orbit the well and then slowly disappear into a quarter donation to the to the science <laughs> museum. Um, that's a that's how Einstein taught us to think about space around massive objects as these wells. And so he said instead of thinking of Earth as being attracted to the sun and that's why it orbits, think of it as Earth trying to go on a straight line, but the space is curved, so it can't. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Think of think of space that way." And then, so so this is why this is this gravitational wave is a natural consequence of his theory, because then you can imagine now if you have massive objects that are creating these big wells in space, moving around each other, you have all this curvature, all this all this curved space time orbiting other curved space time, and you actually get something that's very much like ripples in a pond when you drop pebbles into the pond. You get a rippling in the surface of the pond 
from, in this case, these massive objects. And black holes are the most massive objects that we have, which is why the first detection was from a black hole, because that creates the largest signature that you can imagine. And what this creates is actually rippling in space. And what that means is as the wave is propagating, you know, if a wave were going through your head right now, Scott, your head would get wider and then longer well, and I then wider that. and then longer <laughs> and so and it would and it would ripple you know it would actually sort of undulate in time and i i can tell you now for sure since they were detected last week that there is a gravitational wave going through your head right now and this is happening to your head it's happening on a on a scale that's so small that you i think are not feeling it um it's happening to one part in 10 to the 20th or so. So that's, um, if that were a number, you'd put a decimal point and 19 zeros and then a one at the end of it. And that would be how small the effect on your head is I don't is know how right I'm starting to feel now that you mention it, <laughs> but uh, uh, and I can tell people that 19 zeros and point one after, or one afterwards. Right. Um, so... You know, one of the things that uh, I, I find most fascinating about this is that, and Einstein had talked about this too, is that, and, and am I accurate in saying that time actually changed? Yeah, the 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 time the time changed, the space changed. Einstein said, "Think of space and time as the same thing." Right. Yeah. So the t time was stretched. Time was stretched and shrunk. You can see it. Um, you know, there, I mean, there, there's so much media right now on that detection, but you can actually look at the signal they detected, and what it is is a stretching and shrinking of time or a stretching and shrinking of space. The way they measure it is in space. They send a laser down and back in a tunnel, and they measure how much the length of that tunnel changed. Um, and so they're actually measuring the, the shrinking of space. All yeah. right, so when you say the time changed... It, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean we lost a few seconds? We lost a few minutes? We gained? I mean, it I'm means, trying to I'm trying to picture yeah. it on a clock. I think it's a little easier to to talk about space. Can we talk about okay. space All instead right. of fine. time? That's fine. Um, but see, my next question is going to be about time travel. So go ahead. Okay. Um, the space the space does actually shrink. The the space does actually shrink, and it does actually expand. Um, and so, and how that's related to time is that means that the time it would take a signal to cross that amount of space would be shorter, which is how, that's how we measure those changes in space and time. And that's actually why Einstein said, think about space and time as the same, because the effect is the same. But yeah, space is really shrinking and stretching by this small amount, by one part in 10 to the 20 or 10 to the 21. Something you said a little bit earlier, and we were talking about uh, this being an event that occurred over a billion years ago. Um, and as, as I, I forget exactly the exact words that you used, but the way you put it, that we now know it's happening. Uh, so I'm assuming that this event has occurred again in the last billion and a half years or whatever. Yes. It, we, it, it would be a long time before we we hear it again. Yeah. So this event is done, but we think that many such events occur all over the universe. Um, we suspect that all galaxies have a massive black hole in their center. And when I say massive, I don't mean 30 solar masses. I mean like a billion solar masses in their center. We, we know the Milky Way has a million solar mass black hole in its center. And we know that most galaxies have merged with another galaxy sometime in the history of the universe. 
And so if you put those two facts together, you know that there are many pairs of black holes orbiting around each other all over the universe. And so it's, it's the LIGO people got really lucky for sure that right when they turned on their detector, they saw this pair of 30 solar mass black holes. But it also probably means that they will see many more of them. And I suspect they probably already have seen many more of them that they haven't told us about yet that they're deciphering. The LEGO people, I, not LEGO. I'm sorry, LEGO. the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. It's called LIGO. And that's the group that made the announcement last Thursday that they had detected. Now, this was such a, such a short event, and we had never seen it before. Were they sure? Or, you know, was there some question in, in scientists' minds that, did we really see that? Absolutely. Um, they saw it first in, um, in Livingston. They have a detector in Livingston, Louisiana, and one in Hanford, Washington. And they saw it first in Livingston. They saw this very particular signal. You can look at it on their webpage. You know, the frequency gets higher as the signal goes on, and it also gets higher in amplitude. It's a very particular shape that they knew they were going to look for. And they saw it. And if they had only seen it in one of their detectors, I don't think they would have made the announcement. But seven and a half milliseconds later, they saw it in the detector in Hanford, Washington. Um, and then they checked everything they could. <laughs> then they checked everything they could. There's a great deal of skepticism around gravitational waves historically about uh, in the late 60s, someone made an announcement that they had detected gravitational waves, and it was nobody could ever substantiate it. And this community has lived with that knowledge that there was sort of a faulty claim. Um, what is that, 40 years ago? And so they knew that this one better be good. And so, it, you know, it took them four months to sort of do all their fact checking, have all kind, you know, have every all of their teams tell them why it couldn't be true, and realize that no, it, it really was. It really was real. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Andrea Lohman, Associate Professor of Astronomy and Director of the Grundy Observatory at Franklin and Marshall College. We're discussing the discovery of gravitational waves. We welcome your questions and comment. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. We have an email from Jason says, discuss the massive facilities in the U.S. and Italy constructed for the purpose of discovering this, please. Also, please clarify this isn't actually a sound, but is conveyed as a sound wave. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, so the, the two facilities that I mentioned already are in the U.S., in Hanford and Livingston, and then there's one in Cascina, Italy. Um, and I've been to I've been to all of these facilities actually, and they're lovely and and they are massive. They have two and three kilometer arms, so there's a a, a laser and this is really an enormous laser and a lot of the reason that they were able to detect gravitational waves um, in September is because of the advances that they've made in laser technology, and in and all three of these observatories, the Italy one and the two here, and they're all partners together. The one in Italy is called Virgo, and then the one here is called the two here are called LIGO, and there's something called the LIGO Virgo Scientific Consortium, um, 
that will actually do an even better job of detecting gravitational waves because once they bring in the detector in Italy, they will be able to pinpoint the source, um, the location where these waves are coming from even better than they have with this source that they announced last Thursday. Um, and they, yeah, they send a laser down these two three-kilometer arms. They put um, mirrors on the ends of the arms of the detector, and then they wait for the laser to come back to the vertex in the middle, and they look for changes in the arrival time between the two orthogonal, the two um, perpendicular tunnels. And yes, the, he's right. Jason is right. The the facilities are massive, and they're massive feats of engineering, and they've and done a beautiful job. They're also very expensive. They're expensive, and I, I don't, yeah, I don't have price tags on them. Well, I've, I've seen some <laughs> price tags, but that's one of the things I've seen in the, the and, media reports that uh, they're very expensive. And to his question about sound, I've been thinking about sound. I've been thinking about sound since the press conference, and he's right to bring that up. Um, at the press conference, they talked about hearing these signals, and I and I think that's really only the easiest way to talk about it as a sound. It's not a sound in in the way that any audiologist has ever thought of before and and I think if you know you you were just near one of these gravitational waves such that the the amplitude was larger um, I don't think you'd your ear would detect anything I think that's just the easiest way to talk about something that is changing space it's it's an analogy I think it's a reasonable analogy it's reasonable in that everything we've gotten up until this point has been like sight, like something you would see with your eye, like an electromagnetic wave. And now the reason this is so exciting is it gives us a new way to understand the universe, a new tool. It's like having a new sense. And in that way, I think you can think of it as sound, like that's a different sense from sight. Um, but really, it's not something that you could hear with your naked ear. It's something you can detect using these massive detectors, as Jason says. Yeah, it wasn't like a, there were a number of scientists sitting around. They said, pop, what's that? Right, right. <laughs> right. Jim from Cap Hill sends an email. When gravitational lensing was proved in 1919, didn't that show gravitational waves existed as well? Say what? Just repeat what he said at the very beginning. Uh, when gravitational lensing was proved in 1919, didn't that show gravitational waves existed as well? That's an interesting question. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have said lensing proved proved that. It proved, what, what is lensing? Oh, um, lensing is the massive gravitational objects bending light. Um, and so he's right that we have seen that we have seen light bend around massive galaxies. And it's certainly intimately related to how Einstein taught us to think about gravity. So that was one of the first instances that general relativity the first um the first confirmations that general relativity was correct and the way Einstein taught us to think about gravity is correct that it, that a massive object could actually bend space and therefore change the path of light around it. I actually would have said that gravitational waves um, were first almost confirmed, and people used to argue about this. Now, now we now we don't have anything to argue about anymore because the detection was made. <laughs> but I would have said that they were confirmed when we saw the the orbit of two um, pulsars going around each other, and we saw so so pulsars are these another kind of dead dense star, not quite as dense as a black hole, but almost. Um, and we saw them going around each other, and we saw the orbit decay um, completely consistent with general relativity. And what I mean by decay is that the orbit got smaller. Um, the two objects started spiraling in towards each other, and we actually observed that. And I actually thought that was a great confirmation of the existence of gravitational waves. It wasn't 
a detection of the wave itself, which is what happened last Thursday. All right, let's take a phone call from Tony in Lancaster. Tony, you're on the air. Sure, can you hear me? I'm on speaker. Yes. Oh, great. Uh, I was just kind of wondering, fascinating stuff. Uh, I was just kind of wondering uh, about the mechanics of this, uh, uh, the engineering of this experiment. I I'm assuming, but tell me if I'm wrong. I wonder if the professor could give us a brief explanation of this. I'm assuming that it was predetermined that there was a collision of black holes uh, uh, that billion light years away, and that the apparatus, which I understand was two long tunnels, was somehow aimed at that, I would assume, that section of the sky. So is that a good basic um, uh, description of the, uh, of the, of the basics of, of the way the, the apparatus was set up? It's a, it's a great question, and no, that's not right. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the apparatus, uh, you can't aim the apparatus, and that's both um, LIGO's uh, strength and one of its weaknesses. So its strength is that it sees the whole sky all the time. Any gravitational wave coming from any any direction will be detected as long as the machine is on, as the lasers are running, and as long as they're locked. Um, the the downfall of that is that they they have if you look if you look carefully at some of the stuff they have on on the media now you can see that they have sort of a swath. The way they did the observation defines a swath of the sky in which this massive black hole merger could have happened, but it doesn't pinpoint it very well at all. Um, and so, no, they didn't, they didn't know anything about the event. The first thing they saw about this event was this ripple in their, in their apparati. Um, interestingly, you bring up something that we'd like to do now in the future, now that gravitational waves have been detected and now that we're in a gravitational wave era and we can actually use them to study universe, now we would like to go in two directions with that. Sometimes an electromagnetic ob observatory, such as a telescope, a traditional telescope, might see something that we would think w would emit gravitational waves, and we will do follow-up with gravitational waves, and that's kind of the scenario you, you set out um, at the beginning of your question. And then we'd ask, also like to do the opposite, so sometimes something will be detected first in gravitational waves, and then we will follow it up and try to find the source on the sky in in radio or optical light um, from which it was emitted. Hey, Tony, thank you very much for your call. Let's take another call from Faith in Lancaster. Faith, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I find this conversation interesting but frustrating because, unfortunately, it's way above my zone of proximal development. <laughs> your teachers would know that Vygotsky theory, but... I'm wondering, I have two questions, okay, and I'll take my call, the answer off the air. Okay. All right. First of all, what is the practical meaning to uh, people? I mean, uh, this sounds like a very interesting uh, theoretical, but what is there some uh, practical meaning other than proving Einstein right? Secondly... For someone like me, who's interested but ignorant, what would be a good way to start to understand the theory of relativity? I mean, even kids' books, and can she suggest some titles or websites 
So those are my two questions. Right. Thank you. Faith, thank you very much for your call. And I think she got right to the heart of what uh, many people are wanting. In <laughs> fact, I admitted to you, yes, you did. Be- beforehand that I had to read several articles and still couldn't wrap my head around it. Actually, there's a, a video the New York Times produced, which helps to explain it pretty well. But a lot of this is very complex, and yeah. a lot of people may not understand it, even though it is fascinating, but to answer her questions. Yeah, Faith, very thank you for your questions. Um, to the first question, you know, what practical... I would I would rephrase it and say, what practical use does this have for me? <laughs> does this result have for me? It, it, it really doesn't have any, Faith. Um, there's no practical use. It's not going to help anything really run better on Earth. Um, it, uh, it has some nice spin-off technology, some nice spin-off laser advances that will help some people. Um, but really, this is a way to, to understand, a new way to understand the universe, a new tool for understanding the universe we live in. And I think that's critically important to try to understand the universe we live in. I think if we stop trying to ask those questions, that some part of, of human nature actually dies if we stop trying to understand our universe. So this is, I mean, you, when you, I mean, when you come right out and say that's a pretty blunt answer, that uh, there's no practical use for this, but... It is something that man has been trying to do since the beginning of, of, of when we've been able to communicate is yeah. where did we come from? How did the universe begin? Yes. And that's is that a good way to, to describe this? Yes, absolutely. We will understand better how the galaxies that are in our universe came to be the way they are today, for example. That's the that's about as practical as we get mm-hmm. with that. Um, and then as far as understanding faith, uh, the basics of general relativity, um, I can't suggest a good, I don't have a good book to suggest. I think the New York Times um, article, did you say, Scott, that you was, suggested Well, there's was an good? article that they had, they had produced like a four-minute yeah. uh, video, and I thought the video was very helpful. But I, I, I mean, I, I would say just briefly that Einstein said that mass curves the space in which we live and it changes it changes the way that everything it changes the way that all light travels through the universe and that's that's sort of the basics of general relativity all the rest of it is just sort of mathematical consequences we have several emails uh, susan asked in which part of the sky and she has constellation in parentheses was this discovered and did gravitational lensing make it difficult to map the area of the source I don't. I can't say where it was um, in the sky, uh, and no gravitational waves. Uh, sorry, lensing didn't make it hard. What makes it hard is that there's just LIGO as an instrument isn't good at pinpointing a location in space. And you can tell from some of the questions that we're getting that people want to be able to look at the, the yeah. night sky or look through a telescope and say, okay, this is where this occurred. Yeah, it's a different paradigm in which to think about the universe. It's it's a different way of thinking about everything. That's why it's that's why it's so important. Robert uh, comments, how did they know about these two black holes that merged? How they were, were they able to compute the relative mass of them? And how did they figure out the new mass was shy, uh, the mass of three of our suns, <laughs> And that was the amount of energy expended in that merger, which created the gravitational wave. Yeah, he's been doing a lot of reading. Um, excellent question. All of that was encoded in the waveforms. So if you, you, it sounds like you've probably actually found the discovery paper, which isn't very hard to find right now on the web. 
and there are two plots in that which actually show you what was detected and they were rip you know they kind of look like what you get when an earthquake happens <laughs> they kind of look like wiggles on a on a chart recorder and from the shape of the wiggle they were the two the two sets of wiggles they were able to determine what each of the black holes started at and how much they ended at um, and that's because they have been using big computers to predict what they would see when these detectors came online and that prediction you know that's taken them 15 years to get to where they could predict those those things there are so many amazing parts to this but uh, just thought just went through my head that uh, uh, Einstein without the use of computers was able to predict this. Yes. I mean, that's that's incredible. Yes. Uh, Lon in Lancaster, over what span of space does the expansion and shrinking of space that she described take place at any given instant in time? Um, so it depends, Lon, on the size of the effect. So it's for these waves that were at about... Um, a kilohertz. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this math on my in my head on the fly. But let's do it for the way. So that I'm looking for waves that are more like uh, a light year in length, for example. We haven't talked much about my relationship to gravitational waves, but I look for these much longer wave gravitational waves. And the size of the change I'm looking for is like one nanosecond or one foot over the course of about... Um, a light year. Um, the waves that are probably rippling through your head are the size, like the ones they measured in for Thursday's announcement, were a fraction of the size of a proton, actually. All right. Now, we have a lot of questions, and I hope that uh, maybe after the show that uh, if you have an opportunity, maybe you can answer some of these questions on, sure. our, on our website, WITF.org. I can tell that you're very excited about this. I am. <laughs> what does this mean for the field of astronomy? It's it's a game changer. It's going to change the whole – it's going to change the whole game. There's this the, – your one caller um, who talked about, you know, knowing about the event from one observation and then following it up with gravitational waves. I like to call that the follow-up game, and that's going to happen now all over the place for all these sources. So every time a new gravitational wave source is detected, everyone's going to be looking for it in electromagnetic waves. We'll be able to unravel mysteries that have evaded us for years, like what's, what's the source of gamma-ray bursts, for example, which has been enigmatic for 15 years. Um, Really, every time a technology like this comes online, like in the last hundred years, we got radio waves and x-rays and gamma rays, and we managed to put all these satellites around the Earth that are doing all these amazing observations. Every time one of those comes online, we get surprised. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happens like what we predicted, like, oh, we predicted we'd see this kind of source. And then there are a bunch of sources that we didn't predict at all. And I expect the same thing to happen here. You know, some of this we've predicted. We knew we'd see massive black holes coming together. But then there will be surprises because there's stuff that we haven't ever been able to see because we have had no gravitational signature to observe until now. So, I, you know, I think it's as big of a deal as when Galileo first pointed his telescope to the sky 600 years ago and said, you know, hey, let's look at the universe we're living in. I think we're going to find out that much about the universe as a result of these. Some of those surprises. Anything you have in mind? <laughs> well, there's sort of by definition there the things that we haven't predicted. Um, I, I'm really hoping that we see something, um, or I should say we detect something that we have 
had no idea even existed in the universe. So we, you know, we know we're going to see neutron stars merging. We know we're going to see black holes merging. But what about the objects that we don't even have names for now that we suddenly can detect even though they emit no light? That's that's the kind of thing I would really be excited about. You're the founder of the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, or Nanograve. Uh, what impact does this detection have on your work? It's really exciting. Yeah, Nanograv has been um, in existence for about eight years now, and we are looking for gravitational waves. And for the last eight years, we knew that either LIGO or us would detect the first gravitational wave. So um, we're, you know, in a way they won, but in a way we all won because now suddenly we actually have a detection in our field. We've been operating in this field for decades with no detection. And we would make jokes about that up and down, like we're, you know, we're the only people who have zero detection detections in our field. And now we have a detection. And so now now we can actually say, here is this field, this bona fide field of gravitational waves. We have detected gravitational waves. Now, let's see what we can do with them. Uh, something else I wanted to, to, to mention before you left. Uh, you have been part of a group of scientists uh, that have been providing uh, expertise on a NASA Explorer mission that is set to launch in 2017. Yes. Tell us about that. Um, the launch date is actually August 2016, um, and it's an X-ray Explorer. It's going to, it's like, a, it's the size of a dorm refrigerator, and it's going to hang off the International Space Station. Um, the International Space Station is still up there, despite what you saw in the movie Gravity. It's still up there. <laughs> yeah, and so our experiment will detect the signal, the X-ray signals from pulsars, um, and again, you know, x-rays are tremendously exciting, but they're still electromagnetic light. So I'm very excited about this mission. Um, but it's still, you know, it's still it's still electromagnetic waves, and this gravitational wave stuff is, is going to explode astronomy. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back when uh, that occurs. And you can when NICER launches, yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> Our guest uh, has been Dr. Andrea Lohman, Associate Professor of Astronomy and Director of the Grundy Observatory at Franklin and Marshall College. Dr. Lohman, thank you very much for explaining that. Thanks so much for all having right. me, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Natural gas prices are down. That's good news for consumers who heat their homes with natural gas, but it's having a significant negative financial impact on gas drillers in Pennsylvania. It also has affected the businesses that were doing well, that sprung up or expanded when drilling took off in the Marcellus Shale. Now workers are being laid off, and at least one company has been rumored to be bankrupt. Joining us is State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick to describe this. Marie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. story that uh, you wrote this week and produced, there was something that really caught my eye. There's a lot here that uh, gets attention, but one of the things that caught my eye, and I just wanted to have you clarify this, there are just 19 rigs operating in Pennsylvania. Actually, there's 17. 17. I updated that. I called Baker Hughes. That's the company that tracks it yesterday. So Okay, so what does that mean? Because is a rig the same thing as a well? No, no. Okay. The rigs are the big things you see in all the pictures when you look at stories about the Marcellus Shale. They're the big towers. Sometimes they look almost like cell phone towers. Okay. They're the big uh, rigs. They come in and they drill multiple wells on one site. So they come and they go. So they're up and down. Um but the, the issue with gas production right now is unless they keep 
bringing out new rigs and drilling new wells, uh, the production is going to start to decline because uh, the old wells that they've drilled in the past are producing less gas. So there's a, a lot fewer rigs, basically. So how does 17, how does that number 17 compare to what we had, like, say, last year, two years ago? It's a lot fewer. I mean, the numbers, I just I just checked this before we came on the show, and even in November, I think there were about 30 rigs operating in the state. So, I mean, the number changes, but it's a sign that there's a lot less drilling going on, basically. The price of natural gas has plunged. Uh, give us a sense of how much. Well, it's, uh, it's really, it's at a really low point. Um, I think it, the U.S. Energy Information Administration said that this year the Henry Hub, uh, which is a national benchmark spot price in Louisiana, dropped to an average of $2.61 for the year 2015, and that's the lowest annual average since 1999. Um, and in fact, it's it's worth pointing out that Marcellus Shale producers actually get less money usually than that Henry Hub price, uh, just because we have a regional market here that's different, and and so they're even getting less than that. So it's really low. Again, if you can compare it, you said the lowest price is 1999. Yes. But the Marcellus Shale, it's been like the last six years that it's taken off here in Pennsylvania. Do you know what the highest price we were getting? I think at the peak in 2008, some of the high prices were above uh, $12 per thousand cubic feet. So now, and then in December, they were below below $2. When you say peak, as far as uh, when Pennsylvania peaked with uh, production was actually last year, right? Yes. Okay. So that's production. But, the but price this is, is the price. The right. price was highest when everyone was rushing in to right. start to drill. Right. That's what happens with the... It's it's part of the cyclical nature of the oil and gas business. Uh, anyone who follows the business understands this. Um, you know, when when a boom is beginning, the price is high and everyone's rushing in and they want to they wanna get to it first. And then this happens all the time. Uh, a lot of companies come in, they drill a lot of wells, whether it's oil or gas. And then you have a glut, you have too much, you have supply, outpaces demand, and that's what we have here with the price plummeting. Well, it's a commodity, and uh, you know, just like uh, any other commodity, there are those ups and downs. Uh, if you're joining us, uh, just tuning in, our guest is Marie Cusick, State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. State Impact Pennsylvania is a collaboration between WITF and WHYY in Philadelphia to cover the Commonwealth's energy economy. If you have a question or a comment about uh, falling gas prices and how the companies have responded, the impact on Pennsylvania's economy, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so the price has plunged down to the lowest since uh, 1999, as you mentioned. How have the companies responded? Well, naturally, they're cutting back. They're cutting spending. They're laying people off. Um, some of the the one company I, I noted in the story is Cabot Oil and Gas, um, which is in one of the most productive parts of the Marcellus Shale up in northeastern Pennsylvania in Susquehanna County. They are part of the sort of sweet spot of the Marcellus, and they have some of the most economic and productive wells in the state. So they came out with a press release uh, recently saying they were going to cut their capital budget for 2016 by 58 percent compared to last year and they're just going to go down to one rig. So um, they're, they're just trying to, they're all trying to pull back because, you know, you, you can't make a lot of money right now. If you've traveled now, Marie has traveled extensively through uh, the Marcellus Shale areas of Pennsylvania, but uh, the few times I've been in that area in the northeastern part of the state, you used to see Cabot signs everywhere. 
I mean, you would see them at Chesapeake and uh, and Cabot. They were two of the biggest that you would see in the Williamsport area in for, in, in particular. Uh, so for them to cut back 58%, that's, that's, that's significant. Now, one of the ripple effects of this has been that uh, there were a lot of businesses, as I described in the introduction, that sprung up, they started, uh, they expanded. Uh, or they were doing very well when um, you know gas was 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 being produced. What about now? Well, yeah, it's it's rippled throughout the the supply chain and those affiliated businesses. The the story, I, uh, the business I profiled in my story is a company many of the listeners uh, may be familiar with. Ritu. It's an engineering firm based in Lancaster. Um, they really pivoted towards Marcella Shale around 2008 when the Great Recession was happening. A lot of their other business dried up. Um, so they really, you know, took advantage of this opportunity and started doing a lot of business with the gas industry. I think they said at one point, like 85% of their business was gas. Um, but then they realized they realized two years ago, actually, they said, look, we need to diversify because this is a cyclical industry. It goes up, it goes down. So they didn't want to have all their eggs in the oil and gas basket. So they, um, I talked, I interviewed them for the story and they really shifted uh, their business because of course also other, other things have picked up now that we're, you know, clear of the recession. Um, but certainly it's, it's had an impact. I know I, I've mentioned this before. Uh, I've been in this job for three years going up north, going out west to, to the regions uh, where drilling is occurring. And my predecessor in the job, Scott Detrow, often had a hard time getting hotel rooms, and I've never had that problem. They've built a lot of hotels. Um, in, in some places, you could say they've overbuilt because these communities didn't realize, you know, there's an influx of people, but then they quickly disappeared. Um, so certainly many other businesses have been affected by the downturn. Have there been businesses that have gone out of business that have ceased to exist? I would imagine so. I didn't. I didn't profile any of them for this story. Now, I'm maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but uh, I know that uh, you or was Detro that had gone to Tawanda, Pennsylvania, a few years ago during the boom, and I thought I heard through the great book. Here, here I'm talking about <laughs> eavesdropping on Marie, <laughs> that you were planning a trip to Tawanda. Have you done that yet? Um, no. So, so I've been... So to, I'm getting ahead of you. Well, here, here, I've here. been to Tawanda many times, but in 2012, Scott and the team at NPR produced a, a feature called Boomtown, just showing how much okay, the that. boom had changed the region. And um, yes, we're interested in going back and revisiting that because... Things have changed a lot in four years. Okay, so besides those hotels, I imagine that, uh, you know, rental properties was real, you know, that was a real problem in some of these areas as well. Have you seen other, any other, uh, observed any other impact that the the, the reduction in price has, uh, has, has had? Yeah, where do you want me to start? <laughs> There's <laughs> well, a lot. <laughs> we'll just go through a few well, of them. So, I mean, some of the companies I mentioned are laying off a lot of pe people. Southwestern Energy cut 40% of its workforce, in including about 200 jobs in Appalachia. Um, Range Resources recently laid off 55 people. Uh, the recent, the most recent figures I got from the State Department of Labor show that in the second quarter of 2015, there were two uh, over. 2,200 fewer oil and gas jobs than in the same time period of 2014. So, uh, you know, there's layoffs, there's, you know, spending cuts, there's um, less money. The Even the Wolf administration that has proposed yet another severance tax this year, they're projecting 
that will bring in something like $217 million for the state if, if they get this proposal that they'd like. And last year they were saying their proposal could bring in a billion dollars. So that's a pretty sharp decline. Impact fee. You did a story uh, recently oh, yeah. about the impact that's fee, That's another too. one. Yes, the impact fees are what the um, drillers pay now every well they drill. They pay a fee, and most of the money stays at the local level in the communities where drilling is occurring. So this has become a really important source of revenue for these local communities that are, are dealing with the impacts. So um, just yesterday, the state independent fiscal office, which is like our Congressional Budget Office, right, um, found, yeah. they projected that this year would bring in the lowest amount ever of impact fees. Um, they're projecting $185.5 million, which is a 17% drop from last year. And they said the same things we've been talking about. It's the low natural gas prices. And also they said they saw a 43% decline in new wells being drilled. Steve is in Carlisle. Steve, you have a, kind of a basic question, but it's a good one. Steve, you're on the air. Thank you. Um, so I'm very familiar with agricultural commodities, and with agricultural products, there's always what's considered the sustainable price for corn and soybeans. Is there such a price for natural gas, and could we regulator- regulatorily get to such a price so that the industry eliminates the high ups and downs? Thank you very much for your call. Can you answer that, Marie? You know, that's a good question. I think that's a bit over my head. When I have tried to understand milk prices and agricultural commodities, I know it's very complex. Um, So I don't know. I don't think that is on the table. It's not something I've heard discussed at all. And as far as regulating the prices? I I don't see that happening. We we see the commodities. One of the commodities, as as Steve suggested, agricultural commodities is something that uh, gets a lot of attention in this region of of Pennsylvania. Uh, But many people have been affected by uh, oil prices and the ups and downs of oil prices. And we think about OPEC, for example. OPEC doesn't have the kind of impact today that it once did because we are producing so much oil. But OPEC tried to regulate the, the price of oil by production. Is there the potential that uh, natural gas drillers will do the same thing, that they will try to impact or they will try to affect the price of natural gas by... Now, obviously, they're doing... You know, they're cutting back in production because they don't want to lose money. They don't work together, though. That's that's the issue. Okay, so there's no organization. They compete heavily against each other, which is part of the issue. So they all rush in when the price is high, and then they all produce and then, you know as a group, overproduce, and this is what happens. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Gary in Juniana County. Gary, you're on the air. Yeah, I think you hit the million-dollar question here, or point. Uh, I didn't have any idea that some of these wells are already slowing down at only, like, two years old. We're talking about trying to build billions, not millions, billions of dollars worth of pipelines. What happens if we build these pipelines and the wells start to, you know, peter out? That just means they're going to have to just keep drilling more and more and more, and they're going to get further and further away from the main pipeline. I I just didn't have any clue. I mean, some of the oil wells have been going for 60 years, and this has only been two or three years. So I I just (laughs) – it almost seems like a house of cards, but thank you very much. All right, Gary, thank you very much for calling. He hit on a couple big issues, but pipelines are one of them. Absolutely. Pipelines are a very hot topic, as many people in the area know. There are many plans in the works to lay new pipelines all around the region, um, but it's it's worth pointing out that there are, I think, something around like 
1700, 1800 wells that have already been drilled that are waiting to be connected to pipelines. So um, certainly there, there are wells that are already there that haven't been connected to the infrastructure. And part of the issue with the low gas prices, aside from the overproduction, is the bottleneck of pipelines. They can't get this stuff out to new markets. So for example, New England has become incredibly reliant on natural gas for electric power generation because they've had coal plants shut down. They had a nuclear plant shut down. So they, they're really trying to get this gas, which is right here in Pennsylvania, up to New England. Um, so pipeline capacity has been one of the factors that is that's leading to the downturn. Um, but there are many projects in the works. And as he mentioned, I know many people are upset about it. But the other part of the question is that uh, if these pipelines are built, are constructed, does that mean production increases? Well, the expectation is that it will alleviate the bottleneck. So then, you know, there's there's a lot of dynamics at play about what, what will make the price go up again. But certainly, you know, the, the people I've talked to have said, you know, this is a dip, this is a, a downturn, but certainly there's the expectation that production will be back up again. Something else that Gary mentioned, uh, you know, he's talked about oil wells that have been pumping oil for 60 or so years. Is it different with uh, with natural gas, the life of uh, the you know expectancy of uh, a natural gas drill, or excuse me, a natural gas well? I haven't covered the oil industry as much, but um, what, what he mentioned is true. There is a very steep decline curve. These wells are very productive at the beginning, and then they drop off sharply. Um, so, yeah, they, they do have to keep up drilling new ones to keep up the pace. Um, that doesn't mean we're necessarily going to run out of gas. Um, I think there's also a lot of uh, people have their eye on the Utica shale, which is a different layer of shale. The Marcellus got all the attention at the beginning. But some of these companies have been turning towards the Utica and showing really high production levels. So there's always the potential to just go back down to another layer. We only have about a minute and a half left, Marie, and there are so many other questions. But uh, has this affected Pennsylvania's economy? Well, absolutely. As I mentioned, the impact fees are down. There are layoffs, um, fewer jobs, less spending. That that really does it does have a ripple effect, especially in some of these rural areas where there's not a lot of other things going on. It has been a huge shot in the arm to some of these places, and. Um, Absolutely. It's it's had a negative impact on the economy in those places. I don't know whether you're going to answer this or not, but I'll ask the question anyway. The people who have been laid off, do we know what percentage of those people are Pennsylvanians? The last time I checked, the state labor department did not track that. So I don't know if they've changed their policy. They have changed how they count the jobs a bit. Um, but I know at the very beginning, Pennsylvanians didn't have the expertise that they needed. They needed people who knew what they were doing. So they did bring in a lot of outsiders. That has shifted. They have trained more people, more Pennsylvanians. But I don't know if there are solid statistics on the breakdown of that right now. See, I just wondered maybe uh, there was a way of tracking that by who applied for uh, unemployment compensation, that kind of thing. But yeah. I should circle back with them to see if they are tracking that now. That's a good question. Okay. And Marie, best place to get this information, you did a story on it this week, but the website? 
stateimpact.npr.org slash Pennsylvania. And you can find that on WITF.org as well. State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Friday. We have a number of topics, but the crime and the way to look at it, maybe defeat it, is one of the topics tomorrow.